0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, February 23rd, 2023. I am John Butthor. It's the editor of Commentary Magazine. Christine Rosen uh, is out again today. I said yesterday she would be back, and I was mistaken. She will be, however, back tomorrow. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And Washington Commentary Columnist and American Enterprise Institute Senior Fellow, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. Um, so yesterday, uh, there was a flurry of news in and around and relating to Donald Trump. Trump went to East Palestine, Ohio, and did a walk around the town. Uh, that was number one. Number two, uh, it suddenly occurred to everybody yesterday morning after a, a bunch of interviews that, uh, the, four person of the. Grand jury, the investigative grand jury in Georgia looking into Trump's interference with the 2020 election in Georgia uh, might have uh, completely bollocked any hope of a prosecution of Trump in Georgia by her very peculiar media tour in which she uh, was um, interviewed about what happened. That was number two. Number three, uh, leak that... um, jack smith the special prosecutor in the january 6th matter had um subpoenaed both jared kushner and his wife ivanka trump um an interesting leak uh since i don't know why we need to know that um as it is a again a grand jury investigation and those are supposed to be you know secret and there's no indication that they're targets or anything like that but uh the news was released <clears throat> to the new york times and uh <clears throat> thus uh, providing immense amounts of hope on msnbc yesterday afternoon to the very legal scholars who were blanching at what emily Kors, the jury uh, four person the grand jury four person had done uh, earlier uh, whistling past the graveyard saying well maybe it didn't matter that much that she might have uh, tainted the jury pool in in georgia and uh, and uh, was releasing information about a grand jury investigation that is supposed to be um, confidential. So uh, here's my question for you guys. Is this thing that happened with Emily Kors uh, analogical proof of the existence of the devil? Let me just lay this out for you. Uh, Donald Trump has not had a good six months. Uh, DeSantis is on his heels. We have another poll that has DeSantis beating him uh, in a two-way race. Obviously, it's not going to be a two-way race, but nonetheless, uh, uh, NPR poll. And uh, and uh, so, the P- East Palestine train derailment happens. Biden administration mishandles it, at least from a PR perspective. That's oh, handing Trump an opening to have a big event that will be the talk of conservative media for days. Where he goes around the town, talks about how Buttigieg should really have been here. eats eats a eats a Big Mac, hands out Big Macs, wears his hat. People are saying, "Thank you so much for coming." At the same time, that for no explicable reason, the grand jury person in the in the investigation that most people thought was going to involve some kind of indictment of him raises questions about whether or not he can in fact be indicted because she may have she may have uh, she said a couple of things interestingly not only the stuff about how it was really exciting and she really enjoyed it but also that uh, she had actually gotten a i think it was a teenage mutant ninja turtles popsicle from the prosecutor's office at a ice and an ice cream social thrown by the prosecutor which is not good like that is you know collusion that is a that provides anyone who is being indicted with the possibility of saying to a judge look you, this indictment has to be thrown out the grand jury for person was getting ice cream from the prosecutor <laughs> from the prosecutor in the middle of the proceedings um, so I say this is analogical proof of the existence of the devil because Donald Trump has has these moments of unbelievable luck that uh that suggest a supernatural element, and maybe you might think that this is God involving himself. I would say it's more likely uh that he sold his soul to the devil, and that he actually, as a good strong negotiator, made a really good deal and at right at a moment at which DeSantis was then the was possibly lapping him uh got thrown these two different um lifelines to pull on um leaving leaving uh supernatural explanations aside
1: for a second uh what strikes me is this is what happens when you investigate the most uh, famous man in the world because of course you need to find uh jurors who uh can't be accused of uh coming in with a predisposition against or even for Donald Trump. So uh M- Ms. Coors, who's 30 years old um is chosen for this jury. She didn't vote in 2020. She's 30 years old and even though in the AP story she describes herself as a geek about the justice system she she doesn't seem to have very sophisticated political opinions uh if i chose a political party she told the ap it would be the not crazy party i guess she's uh shares that view with many americans today um but she also doesn't have the uh uh kind of foresight or self-control to not give all of these interviews which as you say kind of gave this present to trump because it raises the question uh that um trump's lawyers could say that well the whole grand jury is tainted now because she revealed details of the prosecution which is uh you know it's a kind of a fine line if you look through these interviews it's it, she's kind of like, met much like Trump and his various insinuations, she walks right up to telling you what's going on behind the closed doors in detail of how they deliberated. But instead, she gives you these weird anecdotes about, um, uh, you know, uh, Lindsey Graham, her asking Lindsey Graham whether it's too early in the year to wear a Santa hat. And Lindsey Graham apparently said, not at all. That really cracked her up. Um, she was really excited to meet rudy giuliani yes that apparently was giuliani line. was funny uh Kemp, then my favorite line in the ap story the first of her interviews was you know georgia governor brian kemp didn't seem happy to be there well no kidding you know who would want to be part of there who would want to be there um I, the other part that strikes me about this story is i wake up in the morning i am still a habitual newspaper reader i get three newspapers delivered to my house. And I try to go through them every day. And uh, I cannot go through a day's worth of newspapers, it seems, without encountering a glowing profile of Fonnie Willis. I mean, it is the Fonnie Willis. Fonnie Willis is the prosecutor in Fulton County, Georgia. Yes, the Fulton County prosecutor who is behind this investigation. And look, she's got something big to work with because this all originates really from the phone recording where um trump asks secretary then secretary of state oh, current secretary of state brad raffensperger you know find me the votes right um but it she it, fonnie willis has been treated with uh, such reverence by the national media finally the trump slayer has been found and it's this fulton county district attorney and yet in the recent weeks we've had this kind of i don't know um the deflating of the Georgia trial balloon so to speak it started last week when the grand jury uh, the redacted grand jury report came out and um even though it seems the grand jury is going to recommend charges which is something that the uh forewoman uh Emily course has also seems to have confirmed it's not clear that the charges are about trump because it seems to center uh, very much on this crazy fake elector scheme and the perjury committed by the people who were involved in that. So, reading between the lines of the redacted grand jury report that came out last week, I had the sense that oh, maybe this is not going to live up to media expectations. And now you get Ms. Coors, who I mean, it just come across it comes across as um kind of nuts. And then so that that uh has spawned Trump's reaction on Truth Social, where he said, This Georgia case is ridiculous, a strictly political continu- continuation of the greatest witch hunt of all time. Um, the special grand jury, uh, uh, the four person, incredibly, is revealing the grand jury's inner workings and in thought. This is not justice. This is an illegal kangaroo court. So it plays right into his hands. Uh, once again, I, and I, I think the media needs to reckon with the with the prospect that yet another
2: Trump slayer uh, is going to miss. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, also setting aside the supernatural, um, I think this is all uh, evidence for what we've known for a long time, which is that Trump inspires his um, enemies to overreact and to get overconfident and get sloppy. Um, and so you have, you know, uh, prosecution that sort of, if, if you think, if you think you've got, you've got him on a slam dunk, uh, you're, you're not going to be, you're not going to cross your T's and dot, dot your I's. And you're going to have this kind of, you know, ice cream party and then it's going to leak. And, um, and the other thing I think, um, that it shows is that maybe Trump's crazy approach to problem solving, which is to only worry about the next five minutes, has a lot to be said for it. Um because at least in his case, because he can always count on there being a five minute opening somewhere that he that he'll be able to take advantage of.
0: Um so I don't believe that I don't believe that that I'm speaking metaphorically, needless to say, of about course. the analogical <laughs> proof of the existence <laughs> of the devil. It's that where you know where he's Houdini. He's some kind of pull. Polit- he he manages to get out of of situations that uh, that would defeat anybody else. Um, though you know Houdini was never really in those situations. That's partially you know the the trick of of magic. Um, I mean there there are weird details throughout this about again about Fonnie Willis the uh you know the the Trump Slayer um that uh one of the major players in the uh, in the elector scheme uh she was essentially forbidden by the judge in the case to go after because it turned out that she had hosted a fundraiser for his opponent in Georgia in a race that this guy was running in Georgia what <laughs> What is she hosting fundraisers for exactly? Fine, she's a she's an elected official. People can do whatever they want to do, but um, this then raises it. She's clearly she's a Trump slayer because they want a Trump slayer. Like every there's always a new Trump slayer. You okay. know, there's Comey. Then there's Mueller. Then there's you know Michael Avenatti. Know, uh, Michael Avenatti, Sy uh, Vance Jr. Uh, you know, and and they one by one uh Eric Swalwell, Adam Schiff, uh the entire the Democratic House of Representatives. I'm sorry, who?
2: Who'd you mention? The, link, the Lincoln Project.
0: The Lincoln Project, anyway. Right. And they just they just right. they come along and they are they become these um objects of you know uh, Subjects of 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 idolatry and and veneration, and then like all idols, they turn out to have feet of clay, and that just seems to be the case here. And I I don't believe uh, contra the way that people think. I I don't think that this then you know provides Trump with a superpower like a jujitsu. You see, he'll never be treated fairly. Therefore, we should reelect him president. I actually don't think that works. It, it it has the effect of slowing him down, confusing him, continuing to make him obsess over the topic of the unfairness with which he is being treated, which is not really the message that you want to use as your way back into the White House, because it's not about the voter, it's about you, which is why it was a gift that Trump was in East Palestine yesterday, even though he tweeted a couple of things about the witch hunt and everything that he was in fact able at this moment to focus outward on the troubles of this community on the feeling that, you know, he was there to listen to them and he was there to support them and they weren't being supported by the powers that be who replaced him and implicitly you want to be supported by your leaders in washington you will go with me again right i mean there's been one person who's defeated donald trump
1: and that's joe biden and and i i think that speaks to the reality that the only way to block donald trump is electorally there's been this desire um among the democrats uh, uh since uh the 2016 election beginning with Hillary Clinton's uh charges that the Russians were somehow involved in Trump's election that you were going to be able to sideline him through non-political means and uh that hasn't happened and we're now you know we're now uh in in June we're going to enter uh the uh, eighth year of the Trump era and so you would uh, think that um the media in particular and I think this is a media story would um abandon their continued efforts to uh to to find the latest Trump slayer coming from the legal process now I I should say this not even if even if this juror, this juror who has come forward under kind of unusual circumstances um uh makes these claims that that doesn't necessarily will prevent uh Fonnie Willis uh, the Fulton County prosecutor f- from, uh, leveling charges against Donald Trump from, from indicting him. And in addition, there are other investigations into Trump. There's the Manhattan investigation. There's the defamation suit that he's involved in with uh, the author, Eugene Carroll. And, and then uh, there's the, the, I think the big one, which is the justice department investigation. That's under the special counsel, Jack Smith. And which is investigating not only um, the records, uh, the presidential records, which have kind of been muddied by the fact that it seems everybody has presidential records in their house somewhere. Um, but the Jan- the January sixth, um, uh, uh, issues as well, and you know, involving whether Trump uh, basically incited uh, an insurrection against the United States. So, it, it, we have this kind of comedy of the juror coming out and doing this media tour and potentially spoiling the georgia investigation but that doesn't mean that any of the legal drama is about to go away anytime soon and i do think in some ways trump loves it because as you know his whole personality is conditioned by television and by you know the kind of the heel turn of wrestling and he understands that he needs to be fighting someone at all times and so i actually think for his voters this is not a distraction at all it's kind of a plus it's like it's the fun part and yes he sees us when he visits east palestine ohio but the truth is he's fighting he's fighting that's all we care about he's fighting and and yet the uh, the legal establishment you know off mainly because of trump's own <laughs> activities, keeps generating these foes for him to engage in this, um, in
2: this wrestling match with. And I I have to give him this, um, I think part of the appeal of uh, his, uh, to, to his admirers here when they see him fighting is that he shows that he clearly believes at every turn that he is right and that he is not in any danger, um. Because if he didn't, he would be crawled up in a fetal position somewhere. I mean, if you have one investigation, one federal investigation against you, one, any investigation of of these sorts against you, and and you have any reason to think that uh, you're in trouble, you're not going to be out there acting like the king of the world. He really he really thinks every step of the way that he that he is he is being wronged here and he will be vindicated. And that is, I think, um that inspires a lot in in the people who continue to admire him. I do
0: think that he has a firm grasp, a firm grip on and uh, not a slippery slippery grip on the people who uh, accelerated him into the nomination in 2016. The question that faces the Republican party in the next year, you know, year and a half um is whether the those people are sufficient in number to get him the winner take all primaries as they did in in 2016 or whether uh, those people who love that he fights and all of that are outnumbered by people who are tired of him and tired of this melodrama the perpetual melodrama some of which they much of which they will certainly blame on liberals and the media and an unfair environment but they would still be willing to turn the page and go for somebody who had some of those qualities but had more of a caesar's wife relationship to corruption and malfeasance and 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 all of that that's what that is what this next year is going to Mm -hmm. be a test of Mm-hmm. And I think uh, yesterday's
1: um, NPR Marist poll actually shines some light on this question, uh, because despite all these gifts that uh, Trump has been receiving um, from his enemies, whether it's the revelation that Biden had the classified materials earlier this year, whether it's kind of the uh, f- the Fonnie Willis um, uh, redactions, which suggest maybe Trump's not as in biggest trouble in Georgia as we thought he was, whether it's this latest forewoman, um whether uh, or proactively Trump's um I think effective um move to kind of own the East Palestine issue to bring light uh to uh what the condition of rural America which has been in deep trouble for over a decade now um there, there are signs uh of um uh, erosion of support within the Republican party and so and we see that it becomes clearer in the more high quality you know major polls like you have with the npr maris poll um this was of uh, 1300 adults and 1200 registered voters and you know the conclusion uh, from npr is that ron DeSantis is at least co-runner co-front runner uh for the nomination and um we have this cleavage which i think will be very important over the coming year which is that DeSantis's support uh, i'm reading from the npr story skews more toward Republicans with college degrees who make more money and live in cities and suburbs, as opposed to Trump's more blue-collar rural or rural appeal. Um, Their distinct lanes, that is DeSantis's and Trump's, could make for a protracted GOP primary if DeSantis ultimately decides to get into the race. And so Trump's hope is that we begin next year with uh, him having a, a a secure lock on the non-college-educated Republican voters, and the the college-educated voters split among several different candidates, just as happened in 2016. Um, that's his hope, and it could happen, but you wonder whether the party uh, that does not want to put up Trump again, the part of the party that does not want to put up Trump again, is going to act a little bit more strategically uh, this time. Wow
0: um one of these um typically revelatory pieces uh that he he produces um on an almost weekly basis tom edsel in the, in the new york times a piece yesterday uh that um that raises his um favorite uh bugaboo which is that uh, all republican parties surge and everything is mostly about racial resentment i'm going to put that to one side cuz I, that's an argument he's been making for thirty years, and I think is, <laughs> yeah. is 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 actually wrong and silly, but but he writes um very brilliantly about uh the constitution of 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 the electorate, um, and uh delves into studies uh, by uh, Democratic and liberal scholars, including somebody who is actually a very distant cousin of mine, Michael Podhorzer, who was at the AFL CIO. Um for a long time on the uh, on the congressional uh, class reversal in which basically he says that uh, you know for most of the 20th century if not more for the almost entirety of the 20th century rural areas in the united states were democratic in flavor and we've had this incredible switch in which we have the democratic party becoming the party of uh well-to-do elites and the Republican Party becoming more a party of the uh rural, you know, semi uh, underclass. That's his point. But I think even more important, and the reason I bring this up is that uh others in this piece, particularly Alan Abramowitz, uh say that the constitution of the Democratic Party has changed to mirror the Republican Party. Republican Party It became an ideologically homogeneous party in which uh, voters uh, looked like each other and voted like each other. And the Democratic Party, which was more of a coalition with more flavoring, has now become much more ideologically cohesive uh, and therefore reflects the Republican Party's uh, intensity in a way that the Democratic Party has not reflected intensity On core ideological and gut issues. Why is this important? Well, we have two. We have one data point from this week, which is a Wisconsin Supreme Court election uh, that seems to be turning on abortion because there is a bill before. There's a question of whether or not a bill before the Wisconsin House or something like that will come up as a. I, I can't quite understand where it is exactly, but the idea is that the Democrats have been running as you need to vote for us in the Supreme Court election in order to stop Republicans from taking away your abortions. And there was a huge Democratic surge in turnout. Remember, this is this is not even an off-year, ele- this is an off, off-year election. This is an off-off-year election. This is an odd-numbered-year election in the middle of February. And they got some insane turnout. And there's going to be some, there's another phase coming. And uh, that... Combined, So if that's an indication that the intensity of focus of Democratic voters now approaches the intensity of focus of Republican voters, this is unbelievably bad news for Republicans. Because as I've been saying since we started this podcast in 2016, there are more Democrats than there are Republicans. There have always been more Democrats than there are Republicans. That number has shrunk over the last 40 years. When Reagan was elected president. The balance, when you ask people if they were Democrats or Republicans, 44% said they were Democrats, 22% said they were Republicans. That number Democrats are down in the 30s, Republicans are up in the high 20s, but it's still, I think, a five or six or seven point gap, depending on when you ask the question. And if Democrats achieve Republican focus,
2: they can't lose. I mean, you know, but it's also, so, yeah, okay. uh, um, what's happening on the Republican side at the same time which I think is is sort of the opposite I mean um is is the lack of focus and uh you know the, the thing about the sort of homogeneity of of the of the increasing homogeneity of the Democrats and and of the left in general is that if you, if you're anywhere uh on the left of center uh you you share basically a common vision of what you want to see you you differ on degree um, the republicans don't have that they they have conflicting visions um right now of of what they want and uh that so they they the the infighting um hobbles them at every turn yeah i, I just want to uh pick up on, on on this point about the
1: changing coalitions i mean john you're right i mean there are more democrats than republicans um the number has, uh, the gap has narrowed over the last 40 years. But of course, Republicans continue to win if they're able to leverage the independent votes, right? So the the there are fewer partisans of either party and there's this huge number, growth of almost 40%, I think, now of independents, self-identified independence. And the, the way to Republican victories is Republicans uh, maintaining cohesion and then adding uh, a majority of independence. Now, what happened last year Uh, And I think uh, what will continue to happen as as long as the Republican Party doesn't get its act together is that the independents are not going for the Republicans. Right. Right. (laughs) Uh, And the surge that you mentioned was not just visible in Wisconsin. There was a special election this week in Virginia mm-hmm. um, uh, where uh, Virginia State Senator Jennifer McClellan won the special election for Virginia's 4th Congressional District. She's the first black woman to represent the Commonwealth in Congress. This happened on Tuesday. Uh, but there uh, there was a surge in this district, which is predominantly uh, African-American and typically doesn't see a huge surge in an off-year special election like this because it's a safe democratic seat that didn't happen this time. And so the um the interest as the, as the Democratic Party changes as you suggest they it it's many in many ways like a reflection Uh, or an echo of the Republican Party of last year. You remember how the old cliche used to be, well, Republicans do better in congressional elections because their voters are, you know, they're more professional, they have uh, college degrees, and so they take a greater interest in politics. Well, now it seems as though that advantage is going to the Democratic Party as the basis of these changes. There was one other just briefly data point to this question of how the Republican Party is changing, which I think was interesting. Jason Smith, Of Missouri is the new chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. And he gave this interview uh, to uh, Politico just recently, where he said, quote, our priorities have changed. Our priorities are small business, working class Americans, and farmers over huge corporations. He went on to say to Politico, these huge companies that get big tax advantages and have very good trade policies that have allowed them to invest billions in China and overlook Americans while they reap all these tax benefits. That's something we're going to be looking into. That is the Republican chair of the House Ways Committee sounding exactly like John Kerry circa 2004. Yeah. I remember I remember during the 2004 campaign, Kerry and Edwards were always talking about the, you know, the corporations that give, uh, that get tax, breaks and ship the jobs overseas that is that is now the republican message um uh, which is significant on its own but it's also when he mentions how he, the smith quote is interesting because he has it seems to me this conception as you say of the republican party as kind of a coalition of varying special interests right small business working class americans and ag right and that recalled to me a long ago essay by irving crystal where he he argued, and this is in the 70s, that the Republican Party's problem was exactly that it didn't understand itself as a coalition of interests. Right. And, and of these interests. So he says in this essay, I have to dig it up. Small business, working class Americans, and farmers. And now that idea that, well, the Republican Party is this coalition of distinct interests, and the party, when in power, needs to serve those interests rather than present what it has done for many decades, which is a kind of a grander ideological vision for the nation, um, has happened.
0: Um, Again, going to Edsel, uh, because this is revelatory as well. As this cohesion emerges, it pushes the Democratic Party to the left, which is the opportunity for the Republicans, obviously, except that the Republican Party is pushing itself to the left in different ways, or what I would take to be the left, which is where it gets wonky but um for example uh there is a scale of one to seven used by the uh, american national election studies uh that tries to you know one being far right seven being far left or something like that uh the uh mean score for democratic voters was 3.7 just slightly to the left of center Uh, This is in 1972. While the mean score for Republican voters was 4.7, just slightly then to the right of center. By 2020, the distance between the supporters of the two parties had increased to an average of 2.6 points. The mean score for Democratic voters was 2.8. That means that they moved 0.9 on this scale of uh, 0.8 on this scale of seven to the left. Bean uh, score for Republican voters was 5.5, which means they moved almost identically to the right by 0.8. So there is this gulf between them. But the movement to the right among Republican voters has been relatively constant over this 50-year period. In other words, they slowly but methodically moved to the right. The Democratic shift in an increasing liberal direction has been more recent and more rapid. This is Alan, the, the political scientist Alan Abramowitz. Um Between 2012 and 2020, the mean score for Democratic voters went from 3.3 to 2.9. In other words, it shifted 0.4, again, on this scale of 7. Well, the mean score for Republican voters went from 5.4 to 5.5, meaning they barely moved at all. But far the most important shift to the left among Democrats, according to Abramowitz, was on the question, so interesting, because of course about racial resentment, how the Republican Party is based on racial resentment, so listen to this. The question is, should federal spending on aid to blacks be increased, decreased, or kept about the same? Not to minorities, not to the suffering, not to the poor, to blacks. From 2012 to 2020, the percentage of Democrats saying increased more than doubled from 31.3% to 72.2%. The surge was higher among white Democrats at 47.5 points. In other words, white Democrats said that specific aid to black should happen that number grew by almost 50 points because of an essay white Democrats, 31 points because of an essay in the Atlantic by
1: Ta-Nehisi Coates. Yes. The most important essay of the last 25 years, the case for reparations, which comes out right around the time 2014, right when that spikes and, and, and launches right around because Ferguson is around that time launches the black lives matter movement. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's the shift. And so what's so funny when I read, um, The And I admire Tom Edsel uh, greatly, but as you say, he's been making this case that the Republican Party is motivated solely by racial resentment for 40 years as the Republican Party has now been becoming a multi-ethnic party, right? So, you know, as this is
0: happening, it's actually the Republican Party is slightly less white. It because yeah. it's taking on a more. I mean, atmospheric- not slightly less yeah. white. I mean, yeah. it's like compared to 1972. Well, I'm sure, is. yeah, of course, yeah, way less white, right? Right. Or when
1: I, I think they put out chain his you know his chain, book, chain, chain reaction, his reaction was 86 wife, yeah, yeah yeah, that, yeah 85 yeah. 86 i think yeah but so yeah so since then it's incredibly less white right so right. you know look I mean, i'm mean, i always for multi-causal explanations i never want to dismiss uh, uh, uh racial views but it's still it's clearly not the case that this is
0: the sole cause especially when the movement is among white liberals right, right? so i just think that this is very interesting and it's interesting because you can see both the profit and the peril to republicans the profit is that uh the democratic party is tending in an ideological direction that that part of the country that is not solidly in the base of the democratic party does not agree with um however entropically or 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 just as a matter of you know the democratic pool is larger than the republican pool And if these people are being pulled in this direction, if the party is being pulled in this direction, and if while Democrats may not believe in a lot, a lot of Democrats may not believe in all of this, uh, they still hate Republicans and they're still terrified of Republicans and they can be driven to the polls in a Wisconsin state Supreme Court election in the middle of February in order to express this fear, terror and anger, um, imagine how much more powerful that can be in a presidential year i mean just imagine how 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 great the pull
1: is right well right especially if the republican nominee doesn't have an answer to the claim that uh he or she will uh take away uh abortion rights right i mean and that's i mean i think that is something that some republicans handled very effectively um uh, last cycle um there's a good article in National Review, the current issue by the reporter John McCormick, saying actually kind of tallying up pro-life wins and losses and saying, you know, all things being equal wasn't that bad a year, right, for electorally for pro-lifers. Indeed, it was one of the greatest years for pro-lifers because of the Dobbs decision. Um, but if you don't have an answer, right, if you don't have a policy uh, and you allow yourself to be um, defined as someone who is going to take away abortion rights, um, you're in
0: you're in big trouble i think that we
1: can easily see that in these results
0: hey let me ask you this because because what we have we have another potentially earth-shaking supreme court decision uh coming in june uh this time on affirmative action two different affirmative action cases uh one uh university of north carolina which is the state school and the other harvard uh and and its treatment of um, of asian americans which is of course the uh, the sh- the more showy uh, of the, the two in part because the prior case though decided in Harvard's favor uh, all the discovery kind of proved that in fact Harvard was actively okay. discriminating against Asian Americans um, it's kind of an unambiguous finding the court just said they're kind of allowed to do that really if they want to because it's you know blah 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 and so we don't know where the Supreme Court is going to come down on this this is an interesting issue because, precisely, if the Democratic Party's core coalition now believes that fingers need to be put on the scale permanently and forever in favor, again, as they say, of blacks—that's that—that is the word in the survey. That's not—I'm not not saying African Americans or whatever. Um, uh, the explosion uh, about this is going to be colossal. And I think unlike Dobbs, where non-committed, not uncommitted people on the issue of abortion were unnerved by the Dobbs decisions, the size or the potential effect of the Dobbs decision, I don't think Americans like affirmative action. I mean, I think Polling has mm-hmm. shown consistently over many decades that or you, if you ask the question plainly, Americans don't like affirmative action. And if Democrats, you know, treat this like it's the second coming of Dobbs, they're going to do Republicans a huge favor. And then people like Tom Edsel are going to say, oh, you see, this is just racial
2: resentment. The, but, you know, yeah, I didn't we kind of think that about the potential, uh, left reaction to Dobbs that 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 they were going to show, um, uh, um, you know, a kind of um, a, a level of outrage that was not shared by most Americans on the question and that they would overshoot and um, sort of, you know, exposed expose their 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 own extremism on the issue. And then, you know, we were sort of blindsided uh, uh, by the midterms. Because they they didn't really turn people off.
0: I uh, I have to say I, I I mean I you know I have to go back and hear what I was blathering about this before. I I was not. I was more. I thought that there could be a real explosion here, and that there. I, Matt did too. I mean I, I know because we talked about it, and like you just didn't know. you, you had no way of knowing what the effect of the Dobbs decision would we be. We were,
1: yeah, I think we we were kind of lulled into a uh, false sense of security, uh, speaking of uh, in the royal we here, um, by the fact that, you know, abortion had been effectively illegal in Texas for months prior to Dobbs, uh, and there wasn't any political, rea- you know, any major political reaction in Texas. And indeed, you know, Greg Abbott, You know, sailed to re election, right? I mean, and so it's, it's, it's the thing about the reaction to Dobbs is it seems to be, to have been very localized. And it's, it also, if, um, dependent on kind of the basically the, political character of a given state right i mean um michigan is different than texas michigan is different than ohio where you know we were just speaking the other day about governor mike dewine winning the largest margin i think uh, a re-election of any republican last year and after signing a very restrictive abortion <laughs> bill right mm-hmm. so it just it, it's it's kind of hit or miss it, it really depends on what you're uh where where specifically you're talking and what again what the candidate is saying um one of the examples in the McCormick piece is of Virginia, right? Because Yesley Vega, uh, who is the Republican candidate in Virginia's 7th district, going up against Abigail Spamberger, and she fell into a trap set by a tracker where she basically said, yeah, we're going to outlaw abortion in cases of race, uh, rape, and, rape and incest. And that, of course, fed all the negative ads, that cycle, right. many of which I watched. But in a neighboring district, um, Elaine Luria lost to a pro-lifer right jen kiggins i think so it, it's just hard to say i will i, I wrote a whole uh, commentary column though john uh, on the polling of affirmative action and here i yeah. do think that it uh, you're right that um while there will be a huge media uh, overreaction about uh the threat to uh, civil rights um most americans are have been including most African-Americans have consistently been against affirmative action since the Bakke decision, uh, uh, another bad Supreme court decision from the 45 years ago. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so, so I, I, I don't know how the uh, political ramifications will play to the Democrats advantage well, in this case, but I will say this, it's also, you know, what does it mean in policy terms? Because we are already witnessing all of these colleges just uh, going undercover in terms of their affirmative action policies yeah. and their response to the end of affirmative action is not to restore merit it's actually to destroy qualifications entirely yeah.
2: but if right. you're l- let's say let's say the court rules against affirmative action if you are uh, some sort of democrat somewhere on the left uh, liberal and um but you don't really li- you never really liked affirmative action aren't you now freed up to, to to vote for uh uh any any Democrat whether or not they are there in there they want affirmative action because the law of the land now now prohibits the thing that, that you don't want
0: look affirmative action was in the 70s and early 80s as it wasn't qu- maybe not quite as big an issue as abortion I mean I'm old I'm I'm older than you guys so I remember this but affirmative action was one of the Three core domestic issues in the United States. Quotas, abortion, and crime were the three leading issues in the United States. The uh, Bollinger decision in 2003 effectively pulled affirmative action, which had been a something that was systematically before the court and before courts for 25 years pulled it back like the court said okay we're going to find that it's okay to use race as a, you know as a as a, as an element but only for 20 more years and here we are literally it's 20 years later that was what uh, Sandra Day O'Connor said and there have been court cases you know and they have been broad and there was an important case in Texas there were, you know there there have been cases over the last 20 years but there was this kind of draining of affirmative action as a major national political issue as the really unjust things that were going on and the really crazy things that were going on were prevented from happening in other words like quotas in municipal hiring i mean a lot of this stuff was state level or relaxing standards by the way because this is all coming back so you know you should but i mean relaxing standards for firefighters or uh you know police officers or people like that physical standards uh not just for you know not just in this case for minorities but also for women and the idea that you know that this was crazy you don't do that you need a fireman who can you know take a you know b- break through a door and so this is not a wise use of your resources And things like where they would literally have cases in which there was a black candidate and a white candidate for some job at the city or state level, and the white candidate would score better on some test, and the black candidate would score a little less, and the black candidate would get the job. And so in in individual findings, which is, of course, what court cases are, they aren't broad policy decisions, uh, the unambiguous idea that this was unjust on a case-by-case as Glenn Lowry put it before he became a critic of affirmative before he became a critic of people who didn't like affirmative action now that he's back being a critic of affirmative one by one from the inside out like that was that was the idea right okay so it, the issue drained uh, was drained of its uh, political effect it's going to be back in a big way if the court overturns affirmative action and in this case democratic blindness Or liberal blindness could have the almost opposite effect of the dobbs decision because at least in the in the asian american case at harvard there is a clear victim right there is a clear victim a striving minority community itself uh immigrants less affluent all of that that was basically harrison bergeron you know was had necklaces put on them you know having to make sure that they couldn't that to to level the playing field with you know the idiot third generation children of people who go to exeter so that those kids can get into harvard and not you know and not and not the asian-american kids from torrance california who go to school and then they go six hours to Chinese school and they do SAT prep and they work in their parents' dry cleaner. And they're deemed not really part of the squad, you know? So that's a
2: big thing. Low personal scores.
0: Low personal scores, right? I I just think that is a very big thing. And then you really could have a kind of domino effect where you're talking about how they're eliminating standards, Matt. Like they're just, they want to just, you know, no SATs, no this, no that. But um, I don't think legacy admission, then you have the thing where the thing that almost everybody thinks is unjust except the people who benefit from it personally, legacy admissions, will be destroyed. I mean, I don't know how legacy, you have secondary effects. And there is nothing about this that commonsensical independence, Particularly ones who have kids who are in school <laughs> wouldn't look at and say, that's good. You know? I mean, I didn't go to Exeter. So I'm, you know, my kid doesn't have a chance of getting into Harvard either. And, you know, this is not right. It's just not, it's like, it's a like a and so you have a harm, you have a you have a class of victims, and then you also have all these other people who are not able to access the benefits of these educations and you have this entire industry that doesn't know how much people hate them i mean they really don't know the whole you know world don't you think i mean i don't think well i mean listening to
1: you i now now i'm kind of thinking that abe could be right in the sense that what the decision will do is basically table the issue table the issue so that you know i mean it's going to be hard for any politician to mobilize voters on an anti-affirmative action standard if affirmative action is illegal and the the you know the response by the universities is this very kind of amorphous uh end to standards um i don't know how you i don't know how you actualize that politically now so that's kind of what i'm thinking about well, One, one thing i do think w- would be powerful is candidates who make the case for merit right? right and and um to return to my favorite politician vivek ramaswamy that is exactly his main argument that's the whole basis for his campaign and he is the child of immigrants and yep. and so i think that actually might might be where things go because you will find among those parents that you're talking about among parents of any race or ethnicity you f- will find the desire yes if my child my child should get the reward he or she deserves based on performance. That is a right. very American idea. And of course it has been opposed by redistributionist egalitarians now for almost half a century. And commentary has always been fighting for merit.
0: Right. Anyway, I just think it's but we're, we're, we're it may not be a big issue, but they will make it an issue. That's my yeah. my point is that I don't think that people like us can make it, but it can be a boomerang issue because people will say and the biden administration will act in ways to let's say retard the effect or mitigate the damage that is being done by the supreme court overturning affirmative action should it happen and that will give space for the idea that the biden administration is hurtling us toward a not very american future and yeah. there are other there are three or four other things that the biden administration has been doing yes. that can connect to that and create a kind of cohesive argument that we this, really do have a huge choice to make in 2020 this, this, this is important right Anti-affir-
1: anti-affirmative action politics will morph into anti-equity politics right and so uh we we, we had this biden executive order last week which basically institutionalized equity uh, throughout the federal government. We have these uh, scandalous cases about the national merit scholarships in my home state of Virginia and how uh, people are not being notified uh, that they are national merit scholars because of equity concerns. So there again, I think that will be the new kind of axis that we turn around, which right. is, is, you right. know, are you for individual merit or are you for the equity based on group identity? And I I do think that's a 70-30 issue in favor of individual
0: merit. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Vivek Ramaswamy, but of course, uh, Ron DeSantis has already yeah, made yeah. his, you know, placed his banner on on the idea that the forces that the powers that be that are running the you know the education system in the united states need to be defeated so he's already he's established the predicate uh that he will then have and you know and the problem is it's very hard to talk about this on the other side to an audience that doesn't already share all of your biases because they know what they're saying hits the ear badly and so therefore they're defensive about it or they don't know and then they say things that are bone chilling you know about how you know a four-year-old starting today uh just naturally benefits from all kinds of privilege and therefore he others need to be given pride of place or benefits when you're four years old in order to make things equitable or that four-year-old I mean, needs to be taken down a notch, yeah, you, know? Get, yeah. you know, that preschooler
1: yeah. get yeah. rid of his privilege.
2: The, yeah. the other thing is that um, the activism in the wake of such a decision w- will be explosive perhaps. And I hope not uh, literally. And uh, this will open up a whole new chapter um, about where politicians stand In relation to the activism and 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 what's going on and um that has a way of of taking political leaders with it or against it um depending on how out of control things get
0: and 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 not to then you know connect this to you know our 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 personal bugbear you know uh, on the right but you do have this world in which um uh, the sort of the uh, Natcon, Socon logic, the things that they are now preaching is fine. There should be affirmative act. There should be quotas. There should be, you know, fingers put on the scale by leaders. They should just be put on the scale for people that we think need to have their fingers put on the scale. So don't say that we shouldn't do this. Just do it toward the right people. And that will be a temptation for Trump. Because that is effectively, it's not the East Palestine message. I mean, because if the message is, they're very unfair to you, then the question is, well, what are you going to do to help them if they're unfair? How are you going to make it fair? Well, Trump, you know, passed Paul Ryan's tax cuts in 2017 and now seems to not like them that much so the only thing he can do is pro- provide what the catholic church you what the what the you know leftists in the catholic church in the 1970s and 1980s called the preferential option for the poor which is effectively instead of instead of you know leaning toward blacks as is said in the you know in in the in the uh, electoral survey you lean toward rural white americans And uh, that will I think that's where Trump is going. It's where obviously where Josh Hawley and even Marco Rubio are sort of heading in that direction. And Vance. Yeah. And J.D. Vance. Right. And so in the presidential race, I think Trump is going to probably move in that direction and leave a lot of room uh, on this. To speak precisely, now this is speaking to independents who don't vote in primary, so that's not going to help you really. But to speak to the Republicans who are not, who are those Republicans that NPR says are DeSantis supporters and increase, you know, the sort of suburbanites, urbanites living in cities more well-to-do who uh, are not going to like this message. Um, And will be reminded not only that maybe they have problems with Trump because he is too self-centered and he, you know, sleazy, whatever, but also maybe in policy terms. They're not going to like really where he comes down on this and maybe on Ukraine. I mean, there are all sorts of things here that 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 might, you know, that might provide an opening. But we we just don't know what those are. Okay, so we uh, I think we've come to an end here. Christine will be back tomorrow. (laughs) Uh, Go to commentary.org slash merch and look at our merch store for fun t-shirts and magnets and cup mugs and bags that you can buy or buy for your friends or enjoy. And uh, for Abe and Matt, I'm John Podhoritz.
2: Keep the candle burning.